All right. It's the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Here at BA, we're often told that food and politics don't belong together. And I don't, you know, I don't wholly disagree with that notion, but uh, it's become increasingly difficult to separate the two these past couple of years. Think about the immigrants who cook the food in your favorite restaurants. Think about how your food is grown and who is growing it, the cuisines you love, uh, and who brought those foods to this country. It's all part of our sort of political sphere these days. Uh, and and food and politics are, are one and the same in a lot of ways. It's something I think we are increasingly discussing among ourselves at the office and as, as a community we're talking about. And today's episode, we have on Julia Tertian. She just wrote a book called Feed the Resistance, or I didn't write it, edited, I guess, if you will. Uh, it's a compilation of recipes and essays from cooks around the country. Julia felt like she needed to kind of do something in this tough political time, and she wanted to tell the important stories of those who so often go unheard. So this is a book that Julia sort of edited and got published in record time, and we talked to her about her story and how she managed to pull it off. Um, after that, a chat with Brad Leone, a.k.a. B.A. Brad, about four recipes he published in this month's Bon Appetit uh, on weeknight braises. Did you know that you can braise on the weeknight? Like, you don't have to spend three hours making short ribs or pork shoulder. You can do it, like, in a half an hour. It's true. And Brad is going to tell you how. All right. Here is Julia Tertian to me. Julia, I feel like you set some sort of publishing industry record on how quick of a turnaround you made this book. <laughs> it was a whirlwind. Yeah. One month. How, I mean, yeah. how is, it, you, listen, you've worked on a lot of books in your day. You know, there's the proposal, there's the recipe testing, there's the writing, there's, the, I mean, all that. It usually takes like a year and a half mm-hmm. to get something out the door. Yeah. This was pretty crazy. Um, How and why did you do this? (laughs) It was, I mean, the book is very much born from momentum. um, And I think I just quite literally ran with that. And uh, Chronicle Books published it, who um, I worked with on my last cookbook. And I was basically on deadline to write my next cookbook when I pitched this to them. So Chronicle published Small Victories, Mm -hmm. which was your first solo cookbook. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So you had a good relationship with them. So it was like, you know, There was no, like, introductions or anything like Mm -hmm. that. It was just like, I have this idea. Can we just do it now? And was there one person in particular at Chronicle who sort of Uh, My editor, Sarah, Sarah Billingsley, Uh um, is definitely my, like, my champion. She's awesome. She made it happen. So how did you pitch this book to her? How did you explain it? It was like a one-page email. um, And I worked on it with um, Kari Stewart, who's my um, literary agent, who also believed very much in this book. And yeah, it was one page. That was it. And we just did it. And I like included a list of people I'd like to include. And what was, what was the gist of that one page pitch? Like what, what was, what was the hook? Do you think? I should look it up and reread it. That's a really good idea. But, um, the hook was basically like the world is pretty crazy right now and I want <laughs> to contribute. Yeah. I want to contribute something productive. And mm-hmm. I think if we work together, we can make, you know, make that happen. And then why? All right. So then why do you think Chronicle got on board? I mean, they're a big publisher. They mm-hmm. make nice cookbooks. Yeah. They try to make money making those yeah. cookbooks. Yeah. I basically asked them to sign up to make something faster than, you know, they ever have and to get it out there and distribute it and work really hard on it. And I asked them not to make any money off of it. <laughs> and so, yeah, so what yeah, the, what so the hell were they ask. thinking? I don't know, but I am just happy they said yes. I think they um, – it really made me feel like – I my values kind of align with the people I work with, which mm-hmm. is a really nice feeling. So, 
did you say, hey, I want to do this book and I want to do it really quickly because we need to act now? Yeah. So how did you guys – what was the prop, the proposal and how? what was the solution in terms of if we want to get this book out in – five months, mm-hmm. how are we going to do this? Um, I mean, there were some logistics about, uh, you know, we printed it in the U.S. and most cookbooks get printed in China. Um, See, did not know that. Yeah, and that's why a lot of cookbooks take as long as they do because literally the boat takes a really long time to don't, ship those books. Don't tell our president. He'll, he'll, get, <laughs> upset, he'll get upset at the cookbook industry. Sad, uh, sad industry. Um, so, yeah, that was one decision. Um, we didn't do photography in this book. Um, that cut down on obviously the time it takes to take photos, but it also cuts down on, it makes printing the book a lot mm-hmm. easier. So there were some of those sort of logistic decisions. Was that the, all right, so the book is about, I'm, I'm holding the book in my hand with a groovy type cover. Um, it's probably eight inches by six inches, yeah. no? It's like eight a, inches by five? It's gift size. I think it's, size. it's pretty cute, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's, you, little. it's easy to hold in the palm yeah. of your hand. Was this your initial envisioning of it, or were you, you know, like what, what did you, what did you think? Um, yeah, I wanted it to be small because I wanted it to be um, really affordable, mm. and I wanted it to be something you could kind of take with you. And it's also nice because um, since all the proceeds go to the ACLU, my idea was really thinking of this as like the best gift because whoever, you know, the gift buyer feels good, they've done something good, they've made this contribution, and the person they're giving it to will also benefit. So it seemed yeah. like. This, you know, it a just win-win. seemed like a gift to me. Yeah. So what, what's the uh, what's the retail? So f- fifteen bucks. Yeah. So cheaper on some of those sites yeah. like yes. Amazon. Oh, I've heard of those. <laughs> if guys. you've heard of that yeah. little boutique. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a so yeah. So Chronicle will hopefully cover its costs and then any proceeds. Exactly. Go to the ACLU. Exactly. How did you decide on ACLU? Because there's obviously yeah. lots of. It's a good question. Um, yeah, that was a kind of long conversation I had with um, with Chronicle and um, with some of the contributors in the book. And at first I was thinking maybe a bunch of organizations because, you know, no single organization serves every single need. And um, so much of this book is intersectional. And the ACLU to me seems to stand – it's a nice sort of big umbrella under which a lot falls. And, um, yeah, they've been really great to work with and supportive. So then the concept of the book. So this is a – it's interesting. It's it's sort of literally and figuratively about the community. This Mm -hmm. is a a, – Explain the book in terms sure. of like contributors and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so the book is it's a you know it's a cookbook, but it's way more than a cookbook. Um, it's about I should know the exact number, but it's about thirty recipes. There's a few pretty substantial essays, and then there's uh, some resource lists in the back. Just sort of really simple, straightforward ideas of ways to get involved. And the content was made by not me alone by any means. I had um, over twenty contributors and a really um, amazing group of contributors who work in um, different parts of the food world, some who aren't in food. Um, Representation was hugely important to me, and the majority of the contributors are um, people of color, LGBT people, and that means a lot to me. And in terms of finding, so yeah, so each recipe comes from a different contributor. Yeah. And so how did you go about finding, you wanted a sort of diverse and eclectic range of People that sort of represent the country, but you also they also need to be good cooks who mm-hmm. can give you a recipe yeah. in a week, mm-hmm. um, hopefully tested yeah. in some regard. So how did you go about that process? Um, that process was me basically um, just nagging everyone incessantly and um, just emailing constantly. And I think I annoyed everyone in this book. Were all these people you knew personally or were, were some people like, hey, you should oh, really talk to, to so-and-so? 
It was a mixture. It was um, a lot of them were people I knew personally. A lot of them were people I wanted to know better um, and getting to work with them and correspond really mm-hmm. helped me develop a lot of um, just friendships that I really yeah. value. And some were, um, you know, I'd reach out to a friend and they'd be like, you know, you should talk to this person about yeah. this. They'd be awesome. So it was very much a community effort. So, all right, let's talk about um, the recipes themselves. Because sure, you yeah. wanted to write, you wanted to make an interesting book. And what I like about this book are the introductions for each recipe from these prospective contributors have a personal story, mm-hmm. some about their family, some about activism. You know, it's 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 a, it's a wide range. Um, but you also want the recipes to work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I guess a couple of th- questions. First of all, how much back and forth was there about when you're asking someone to contribute something for no money and you need it quickly? It's hard to be pushy with them, but in the same token, you want to make sure that you have a good mix yeah. of recipes and that. I will clarify. We did pay all the contributors. Oh, you did. Okay, which right. was um, oh, God. another That's, thing. Who, I, I, don't, I didn't think anyone got paid for yeah. writing these days. I mean, not as much as I would yes. have liked to pay them, but it was important to me that their work not just be credited, but also compensated. So I talked Chronicle into that. <laughs> talked them wow, into a lot of things go. with this book, and the process was basically. I spent a lot of time up front working on basically the email I sent to everyone, explaining exactly what the kinds of recipes I was looking for, um, but also not asking someone to specifically make like, hey, Jocelyn Delk Adams, you're a great baker. Can I have a pound cake? It was just like, you know, these are the types of recipes. And then she came back with the pound cake recipe. So it was very much. But what did you say? Did you say, I want something personal? I want something with a story? Mm -hmm. Like, What was your request to them? Um, So I basically explained how I envisioned the book, what it would look like, um, the purpose of the book, the why I was making it, which was, um, yeah, to contribute something really productive and show how food can be this means of um, of change. And um, so I sort of broke down that kind of like emotional sort of component. And then I gave them a deadline. Um, you know, I asked people if they could test the recipes before. I tested all of them afterwards in my kitchen. I want, I want to get to that. Sure, also. yeah. Um, so how, was there mm-hmm. ever, how much back and forth was there like someone – pitched a recipe and you're like, uh, I don't know if that's right. Or, oh, we already have an adobo yeah. recipe. Can you give me something different? Um, no, there's only one adobo. <laughs> by, <laughs> and by, I want to read about yeah, that. Yeah, by Yana, who's awesome. Yana Gilbuena. I basically, I, th- I don't think I asked anyone to change the recipes. I think they all came back with things I basically never would have yeah. thought of, which was wonderful. And yeah, I asked everyone to write their own introduction, the head note, which was, you know, the word for that little intro before and the then, recipe. And then was Sarah editing those or were you? Um, a little bit of both. both. I sort of went through it all. Right. and then, some, some people yeah. are better writer than others. Yeah. And, yeah that's a, I asked them to basically write it as if, I mean, this is literally what happened. Like email me, mm-hmm. write it like you're emailing email. me. Tell me the story. Exactly. Well, I love this. So speaking of Yana Gabuena, who's a quote unquote culinary nomad. I'll get mm-hmm. to that in a second. Uh, but she writes, Filipino culture centers around dining. Food always brings people together. Whether you're a family of four or ten, one always, and I mean always, cooks for ten or more <laughs> just in case a friend, a cousin, or a neighbor shows up at your dinner table unannounced. If not, you can always eat the leftovers the next day. Um, and that's an interesting. I guess, you know, food brings people together. And, and I think that's – whether you're seeing old friends or colleagues or your spouse, et cetera, like you often sort of gather around the table uh, to catch up. Um, and that's a very – I think regardless of your sort of political leanings or culture, like that's a very positive sort of spirit that we all can relate to. And I guess with this book, you know, how did you balance – hey, man, like, let's have some positive vibes here. Yeah. And, hey, man, we are pissed off and we're going to change this. You yeah. know, 
you know, how did you strike that balance in terms of like um, what, what, where people were coming from? Sure. It's a great question. I, um, and I, I like that you picked Yana's introduction and because I think she really speaks to exactly yeah, what you said. And what is Yana doing? What's her backstory? Yana is awesome. She um, runs this basically pop-up dinner series called Salo Salo. And she went to every single state in America to do a pop-up Filipino dinner. And she is now writing or maybe has already written a book about it called No Forks Given, I believe, that she's kickstarting. Um, so she's definitely like a a self-starter, um, highly like motivated, makes things happen. Um, she's also just this wonderfully positive person, which I think speaks to the positivity of food. And this book is quite happy. You know, it's yeah. like we're in a time that's quite confusing and there's so much oppression and there's so much injustice and there's things that, you know, keep me and many people up at night. Um, but I think this book speaks to the sort of power and positivity of food and it's, you know, it is this literal thing that gathers people around a table. Like, that's so important. And it can gather, you know, like the way Yana does, it can gather different people in different places, introduce them to new things. It's it's a really powerful tool. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It, I think, you know, it, you, you mentioned this before in your intro to the book, that the food world has always been an activist community, maybe not in an overtly political way, but whether it's, you know, share our strengths or meals on wheels, mm -hmm. or, I mean, there's a ton of food, like hunger charities that people really come out and support. Um, and that in itself is a form of activism. But you talked about how that's something you'd always done, but yet you hadn't really gotten involved politically. Sure. In yeah. I think the food world is sort of intrinsically, um, it's about feeding people. Yeah, it's, it's, nurturing. About, yeah. it's a nurturing sort of loving yeah. community at its, at its core. And, 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 the, and also I would just say this and, uh, the amount of charity that professional chefs do is astounding. It's huge. And yeah. if you're a successful chef, you are literally, literally, I mean, being asked to do at least one charity event a week. Yeah. I mean, year round. And you've got to pick and choose just because you have businesses yeah. going also. And people show up and they do them. And I, I love that about the food industry. But I also wanted to um, sort of take that energy and um, that sort of generosity of spirit and push the conversation uh, forward a little bit and talk about not just about hunger and about feeding people, about, but, um, you know, introduce more ideas and conversations about things like, you know, who are we feeding? Why are yeah. You know, why is this person hungry in the first place? What systems are in place that, you know, made that happen? I mean, you had an interesting quote. You did a piece in the uh, Chicago Tribune a little while back, and you said, so much of the book is providing a framework for the people who have had the privilege, like me, of not being part of the resistance until the current administration. Uh, it's a guide for what to do that's sustainable, very practical advice to avoid being overwhelmed. Um, yeah, talk about that. that, what you meant by that privilege. Sure. I mean, I quite frankly just meant white privilege. I'm yeah. a white person in this world, in this country. Um, that entitles me to a lot of things just by virtue of my race, my skin color. Yeah, and, um, and the eight years prior, we're like, hey, man, everything's good. It's like, yeah. we're in a good place. Like, yeah. the country's in the right direction that I feel like I'm in step with. Yeah, and um, I think a lot of people felt that way, and I think a lot of people in this country um, have known that that hasn't been the case. And um this country was built on a lot of things that are really difficult and hard to talk about. And many people were oppressed and continue to be oppressed um, in order to put people, you know, like you and I, two white people sitting, you know, yeah. in the Condé Nast building right now, <laughs> um, you know, to put us in really comfortable positions. And I feel like so strongly that if you have, um, I basically feel like the work I've done, I've had the privilege of knowing what it's like to have my voice heard. And I, uh, 
feel very invested in making that something that's available to an increasing number of people who are not normally heard from on this kind of yeah, platform. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like, uh, I guess, you know, something that we sort of, I don't know, struggle with but discuss here at Bon Appetit is, is that separation between professional and personal. Um, and that a lot of us personally, whether that's with our own time, like getting involved, whether it's politically or through charity events or whether it's on Twitter, which can go a whole sure, other direction. Yeah. Um, you know, and then what a brand like Bon Appetit should stand for and should it be political at all? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's tough. I got, it's, you know, I spent election day in Philadelphia canvassing for Hillary Clinton with my wife, um, just because, hey, I feel like she can lead the country in a more stable direction, uh, <laughs> at the time. Um, but then I, I I didn't feel – that was not something I would have necessarily written about in my editor's letter in terms of making an argument for one candidate or the other. That, I, think that's, I don't think that's why probably people read Bon Appetit. Sure. They don't, they don't really necessarily want to hear me from me. And I also imagine that based on, you know, readers who I meet at various food festivals and stuff, I imagine we are probably split down the middle between Republican and Democrat. And I sort of have to respect who our readers are and, and, and what they're interested in. Sure. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of interesting points within that. And I think I think even you just thinking about, you know, is this something I can discuss? Is it something I want to discuss is sort of step one. You know, you were. it sounds like you were moved by what happened. I think many of us yeah, were. Yeah, and we did, so, you know, I wrote a blog post about being down there that day. Mm -hmm. No, we did I remember. this family meal series with to help sort of the immigrant workers within restaurant kitchens, stuff that I felt was pertinent to the food yeah. industry and sort of where we are at as a culture now. Um, but, but yeah, it's tough. It's like it's kind of understanding, well, can, this makes sense, but this is pushing it too exactly. far. Exactly. It's interesting because I think, you know, I have the um, incredible privilege of not I'm – I'm a freelancer. You know, yeah. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> no. I'm not um, wed to any, you know, larger company or, you know, anything like that. My views are my own. I'm able to bring my full self to work, um, which for me, you know, first and foremost, I'm like an openly gay woman. I talk yeah. about my wife all the time, and that's very intentional. Um, and you also both both of you have successful careers where people want to work with you. You as a, a cookbook writer and creator, uh, Grace as her site, Design Sponge, um, that, yeah, you're at the moment at least, you're not like desperate for work or hoping, you know, people are coming to you. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad it comes off that way. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think so there's sort of that distinction of, you know, do you work alone or do you work for a bigger group that you have to, you know, uh, sort of consider their views and are you representing just yourself or are you representing a larger thing yeah. you have you know you stand on top of this gigantic brand but I think the fact that you straddle sort of both audiences is amazing and it means you can talk to a bigger group of people and at the end of the day to me it's um, it's not about a candidate it's about all the systems and structures that are in place so I think there's a lot of decisions that um, you as a magazine editor can make that have a huge impact you know it's who's in the room where the decisions happen. Is that yeah. a diverse group of people? Yeah. And, that, and that's a struggle, not a struggle, but something, I guess, a, a, a goal uh, that we need to do a better job at oh. and, we're, and we're working on. And, and, and that's something you got to ask yourself constantly. And yeah, and I think a lot of what this past year has been like for this country, for everyone in this country is asking yourself questions, Yeah, you know, and, and sort of asking the hard questions and am I doing enough or am I doing the right thing or trying to understand where maybe that other person is coming from and whether whether there is common ground there. Um, 
and it's and it's, you know it's a process. Yeah, and that self awareness is so important, and that I think self awareness, and I can speak personally, I think that leads to. Uh, sort of community awareness. And I think it leads to sort of better, more informed decisions that help support, you know, a more balanced and kind of equitable group. And that's yeah. a really good thing. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I get my, my approach has always been like, keep it food relevant and try to keep it positive and, you know, and, and celebrate that diversity, which makes the food world in America so amazing. Yeah. Um, it's hard to, if you, if you love quote unquote ethnic cuisine, it's kind of hard to not recognize and support and love the people who make it. Absolutely. You know? And I think um, food is, I think, extremely powerful because, you know, it's the one thing every single person in the world has in common, which is incredible. Yeah. And I think within food, there's so many ways, and this is something I thought a lot about with the book. I'm a big fan of that phrase, you can do more with honey than vinegar. Yeah. Um, and I think with food, there's so many ways to do that. And, you know, if it's supporting which restaurants you go to, looking into them a little bit more, thinking about who contributes to your community and how can you better support that person? Are they an immigrant? Are they taken care of in ways outside of their, you know, their business? It, one decision, one thought leads to another have and you, another. Have you personally encountered any resistance? Because I, I mean, I, mm -hmm. I know us as a brand, I will get letters and we'll sure. get emails. Yeah. And if, if something is, does not jibe, like stick to food, bon yeah. appetit, yada, yada, yada. But as you said, you're a freelancer. Have you, where have you encountered whether maybe whether it's a protest or with the book or anything <laughs> else on Twitter? Like I, I, I mean, the social media that I use the most is Instagram, and okay. I'm pretty overtly political on my uh -huh. Instagram. Um, Instagram, and, it seems to be a less toxic place than Twitter in general. Yeah, and I, I feel really delighted about the um, people I communicate with on Instagram. And I think for the most part, we tend to align. Um, but there's a lot of people who will, you know, if I'll, um, you know, post a, a picture or comment about something um, that's quite political, I'll get, um, you know, comments that are resisting what I'm yeah. putting up. Um, and I make a point to try as much as I can to engage with each of those because yeah. I think that's a plat not a platform, but it's a it's a space where you can have a conversation. And, you know, right after the election, I um, got a message. A woman who I don't know personally, and she had, like, left a few comments on things I had posted before. So I sort of recognized her handle, but I didn't, you know, we don't know each other. She sent me a DM letting me know that she and her husband um, both were really torn in the election, ended up voting for the current president. And she wanted to let me know that um, not everyone who voted for him is against gay people. And she went out of her way to let me, an openly gay person, know that. Yeah. At first, I, you know, I just wanted to delete it. I was like, I don't, okay, thanks. <laughs> um, and then I thought, wow, that's interesting. Like if she, she did that for some reason. So I wrote her back and I told her, you know, how it made me feel to receive that. Um, and I asked her some questions and we, we had a dialogue and I actually just a few weeks ago was remembering that. And I, I don't know how, but I remembered her handle and I went back and I wrote back and I was like, I just wanted to see how you're feeling about things. You know, yeah. we're, we're a few months in here. We had like a really interesting conversation. And I wouldn't have had that conversation with her or other people like her had it not been for no, and that I, and tool. No, I, and I also think – like I'm on social media a lot and mostly Instagram now. And I, I, I follow a lot of uh, sort of – sort of, I, would, I don't know if you want to call them insiders or whatever and on Twitter, whether it's a political reporter or a sports reporter or someone in the music industry. Uh, but trying to engage in a conversation on Twitter is really difficult. It, it's, a, it's a lot of shouting down yeah. and piling on, and like you could not have had that conversation no. on Twitter. And that's what kind of bums me about that, that there's – because I do think 
you know, like, yeah, I think you should try to figure out where this person's coming from. It's like, okay, we probably come from different places, but you also understand that they probably live somewhere very differently. They had a different upbringing. And it's like, it's if you're not willing to sort of find some common ground, you're not going to change a lot. Yeah. I, I think. think just talking to people who agree with you isn't going to get no, you anywhere. That's pretty so, easy. Yeah. Um, what in terms of promoting the book and whatnot, what, what, what do you, what do you guys have planned? Sure. Yeah. We are basically, I'm going to a couple different cities. There's no profit being made. So there's not yeah. a huge budget for things <laughs> like, you know, fancy book tours. Um, so I'm kind of adding on events wherever I'm sort of going anyway. Okay. I'm trying to do that. And, um, Basically, everywhere I go, um, I'm trying to rope in any contributors who are nearby. And one thing that's really great about the book is the contributors, you know, they're not just all from like New York or San Francisco. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are. But I um, worked really hard to make sure that, um, you know, a broader uh, range of the country was represented. So, for example, one of the recipes I love, this um, cabbage, and it's from uh, Davida Davison, who runs the Food Lab in Detroit. And she's amazing, and it's her grandmother's recipe. She wrote this beautiful introduction about, um, you know, what it means to her. And so she's organized for us to do an event together at this bakery in Detroit that's um, run by these two black women who are a couple and called Good Cakes and Bakes. So as much of that as I can, you know, doing things at places that really contribute to. Well, I guess that's the question. Like, what what do you hope to accomplish from this book? Like, part of it is, like, personal. Like, hey, I feel like I contributed. I feel like I did something, which I think for a lot of us in these times of whether it's tragedy or political unrest, like, you just want to feel like I want to do something. Like, what can I do? But then there's also the the impact. And, and, you know, what impact do you hope this book has? Um, I hope that it really has little to do with me. I hope it Mm -hmm. sort of raises the platform and voices of everyone who's in it. Um, I hope it raises a good chunk of change for the ACLU. That would be great. Um, And I hope it just sort of empowers people to realize how much they can do as a single individual and how much they can do if they engage with their community. Um, do you think you'll be able to any 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 like-minded <laughs> I think we all have this experience like like-minded people like us who then give this to their parents sure and like trying to come like hey mom just please yeah. do this like you know there was a part of me that thought you know maybe I should have used a different title so it's sort of a little sneakier get them with um, the honey instead yeah, of vinegar exactly. yeah exactly <laughs> um, but it was important to me to sort of take you know a pretty firm stand and mm. But yeah, I definitely hope that people who don't necessarily align with kind of the values that I feel like are represented in this book, I hope so much that people give those people this book and yeah. I hope they enjoy it and I hope they cook from it. I think it's also what I, what I like about the book also. It's, it's, it's well done. Like I said, it's, it's a small book. Uh, there's not photography, but there are great recipes and there's a lot of great writing also. Um, Thank you. And I like, I mean, I love this piece by uh, Sh- uh, Shakira Simley. Simley? Oh, she's amazing. And it kind of gets, I guess, somewhat into the Black Lives Matter issue, but just her talking to her younger brother over Thai food and just sort of, like, explaining, like, don't get shot when you go outside. Mm-hmm. And, like, be careful. And mm-hmm. the cops pull you over, do this. And, the you know, teenage kids like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's sort of, I know mom or whatever, yeah. you know. But it's kind of heartbreaking. Like, you know, and, and people like LeBron James have talked about this. Like, yeah, it's dangerous. If you're a black teenage guy, like, driving the house. Black. Yeah, yeah, it's and, and, you know, and you would hope that that's a human thing that people can relate to. Again, regardless, it's not about cops being bad or this or that. But it's just, I don't know. I think pieces like that, that, that this book feels personal and hopeful. Um, it doesn't feel diatribe Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think um, Shakira's essay, which is 
beautiful and beautifully written and powerful. Um, really speaks to the power of a personal story. And, you know, it's a story that, you know, I feel like I understand the concept of <laughs> driving while black. I, you know, I very much support Black Lives Matter, but I, as a white person, should not be the one explaining that. And I'm so glad that um, Shakira wrote that piece. And I think she used food in this beautiful way to sort of kind of, you know, symbolically bring people to the table. And, um, you know, she talked about, you know, what she and her brother ate while they're having this conversation. And those are, I mean, as you know, probably better than anyone, those details about food just grab people, oh, yeah. you know, and it brings them in. And but again, like you said, it, it's something that we all can relate to and we all, that's where our memories are. And exactly. Sort of sentimentality yeah. is. Yeah. So you got this published in record time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going on a, uh, you're going on a, Speedy. a, a world tour. Where do you go from here? Uh, you know, um, this is, this book for me was something that, it, it allowed me to sort of really put into words and on paper a lot of the things I've been, you know, thinking and feeling, doing, and the experience of doing that and the experience of getting to know everyone who contributed to it is one that I really do believe has fundamentally changed me. And I think I can't imagine doing anything now without thinking about the things that I put forward in this book, you know, yeah. representation, um, speaking up, um, giving back. You know, these are things that have always been important to me, but I think using you know, whatever platform I have to just yeah. really promote I mean, it that. Almost, I mean, like, as a print media guy, I'm all <laughs> for print, but it also feels like this could live so well as a digital community, as yeah. an ongoing, continual thing where people can gather and exchange ideas and, and voices and opinions uh, and actually communicate with each mm -hmm. other and talking about social media and whatnot. Had you thought about that in terms of... A digital iteration? Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I'm such an analog person. I, work, I, <laughs> you I make, make books. You make cookbooks, yes. I make books. I grew up in a house where my dad is a book designer. My parents worked in magazines. You know, print media wow. is like, I'm like, oh, things happen on paper. You, That's where they happen. You grew up in like the Paleozoic era or something. <laughs> um, but you are absolutely right, and that's something I would love to do. I just have to wrap my head around it. You got um, to buy a computer first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do everything on a typewriter yeah. now. <laughs> uh, all right, Julia Tertian, thank you so much for joining us. Feed the Resistance, Recipes and Ideas for Getting Involved. Out now, you can find it at your local bookstore or that big Amazon place yeah. online, and all proceeds will be donated to the ACLU. Thanks so much for supporting it, Adam, and having me on. My pleasure. Thanks, Julia. Brad, welcome back to the pod. Thanks, sir. We are talking weeknight braises. I didn't know weeknight braises were a thing. Well, I'm sure the French have a, a, a fancy name for them, <laughs> and uh, I like to call them. I like to call it a, like a quick braise, yeah. where you can take like you know, in these recipes that we did for the dinner tonight, um, tougher cuts of meat, say like a boneless short rib we used, or um, chicken drumsticks. And you can just kind of saute and brown them and then just kind of finish them in like a like a shallow braise, I guess it would be called. And uh, so it can kind of just come together pretty quick. And because the meat's thin and, you know, a chicken, a chicken drumstick isn't that large, you know, it can kind of – you can blast it on a good good simmer and it, you know, in a liquid and it'll – it gets – within under an hour, it's – you know, you can just pull the meat off. All right. Well, let's, let's run through these recipes. I'm intrigued. They look delicious and they're in the October issue of Bon Appetit. First up – Pork tenderloin with golden beets. Yeah. <laughs> and sauerkraut. Um, See, I'm going to say, first of all, I have two thoughts because I have a recipe similar to this one. I don't know if you stole it from me, Brad. <laughs> but, inspired. But a lot of time, I kind of always think like, pork tenderloin is one of those cuts that 
it can be kind of dry or bland if you just dry 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 roast it or dry sear it. Well, at the right, and at the end of the day, I think pork tenderloin kind of got a bad reputation maybe in the '90s. Um, there's it's just like, a, it's, it's like the boneless, skinless chicken breast of pork, which you know is I love boneless, skinless chicken breast too. But it, <laughs> you have to. It's you know not all pork, not all chicken is created equal. You know, uh-huh. so you want to go get yourself. You know, your pork tenderloin shouldn't be three feet long. Yeah, and you know, uh, four inches wide and brilliant white when you cook it. You know, it should be more of a darker pork. Should it should be? It's not the other white meat. Yeah, you know, it's it should be, it should be kind of dark. It should be a darker meat. Right. And uh, you can get a nice little one. You know, it's a, more of like a, a reddish kind of color. Almost looks like almost like a beef. And you just sear that off real quick, and then I I finish it in a little bit of wine and the sauerkraut juice, and uh, just top it with a beautiful little dried apricot and parsley and walnut kind of little little mix that yeah. you know a little sauce. So what you're doing, yeah. So you're essentially you're, you're browning the tenderloin, which and, uh, it's, and it's raw on the inside. So like you're just picking up color on all. You turn it, you know, kiss all the sides, high heat, and, and kiss a, the sides, as they say. Kiss the sides. Yeah. So you're searing it. You get that nice caramelization, and then you're putting it in a, a skillet yeah. with some liquid about halfway up. Top not on. even. Not, not even, even halfway. Are you yeah. doing the top on? Well, I guess with the mass of the yeah. sauerkraut. At the end of the day, yeah, yeah, sure, it is about halfway. Yeah. All right. So you got sauerkraut. What's the liquid? Uh, white wine. You yeah. put in it and a little bit of chicken broth. Yeah. I, see, I, I did a recipe similar to this, um, which I kind of stole from, or I would say adapted. Stealing's a bad word. It, yeah, I adapted this recipe <laughs> from Matt and Ted Lee, the Lee brothers, uh, good friends and great cookbook authors. They did one with, I want to say, with Madeira. But what I did was mm. there's that great recipe from the Silver Palette cookbook, Chicken Marbella, which we'd always have for Passover dinner my mom would always make with chicken. Um, and I was like, so I took the 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 tenderloin after having this dinner at the Lee Brothers house. I was like, wow, that was delicious. And I marinated the the tenderloin with like they that that rest one is there's like oil, vinegar, there's some herbs, there's some prunes in there, there's some olives, etc. Sear it off, then pour that liquid back in a pan Ooh. and simmer it for about 15 minutes or so. And that's your sauce. And that's the sauce, but it also keeps the but the braising keeps the otherwise right. meat that can go dry really just moist and tender. And I cooked it to kind of like medium slash medium rare, you know. Right. I mean, I turn it a couple times mm-hmm. just so you don't because if you don't turn it and it's only half submerged, you'll get like a little bit of a line. You can tell yeah. like some of it'll be oh, yeah, yeah, a yeah. little drier. Yeah. So I turn it a couple times. All right. So you're you're simmering with with wine with sauerkraut. Where do the where do the beets come in? The beets come in; they're in there as well. So you oh, saute okay. them up, and you kind of once you brown the meat, you do your vegetables, and then you yeah. add all the liquid. You add the meat, but you bring the liquid yeah. to a, a simmer. Yeah, put the meat back in it, cover it with a little foil, and like you said, yeah, it just keeps it nice and moist. It kind of like is a little self basting kind of. Yeah, and thing. I think what's interesting about this is also just the the key to a quick braise is as we'll discuss further, just the size of the cut of, of meat often. And we're not talking a pork shoulder, right. which is like six inches in diameter. A pork tenderloin is about, I don't know, an inch and a half in diameter maybe? Right. And it kind of tapers off at the end. Yeah, it's small. It's a small cut of meat that can get tenderized relatively quickly on a, on a Tuesday night. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah, let's just, let me get that out of the way. Good point. I mean, we're not talking about doing on a weeknight like a six-pound pork shoulder yeah. in an inch of water. I mean, it's yeah. just not going to do it. Yeah. Um, but like the, some of these alternate cuts where, like you said, are a little smaller or just a little, you know, mostly just smaller where they can kind of, you can get away with less time, less yeah. liquid. Or what you do, I'm going to jump ahead yeah. page-wise because the, the listener can't even see the pages. So what the heck? I'm just going to segue to the sambal short rib stir fry. And like, so what you did here is you took short ribs, boneless short ribs, 
and you slice them against the grain right. to essentially make them smaller. So it's, instead of braising whole short ribs, you're cutting them up first, right? Right. It's one of my – I mean, kind of like a few months ago, we did the uh, the cheesesteak, uh-huh. and it was kind of a similar situation where you can take the boneless short rib. I in the, It's not necessarily, but but you can partly freeze it. And it can allow you to get real thin slices. Oh yeah, that way. Yeah. So when the when the meat is like after a half an hour or so in the freezer, yeah. it firms up. It and firms it's easier up. to slice. And you can get nice, clean, thin slices. And that meat has its own little fat marbleness into yeah. it. It's one I had it for dinner last night. Uh, and because it's thin and because it's fatty, you can kind of hammer it away. I cook this this particular dish in a wok, and mm-hmm. I start with just the meat. I just brown the meat with a little oil, and all of a sudden, you know, it goes from being this brilliant pink mm-hmm. to dark brown, and then it starts, all that fat starts, it just starts mm-hmm. going in its own mm-hmm. fat. It's delicious. And uh, and then it's it's cooked. I mean, it's delicious then, but yeah. it's it's a little chewy. Well, yeah, yeah. So then what, yeah, when do you add the flavoring and the liquid and stuff? Yeah, so once the meat's done, then, I mean, it's like then we just do a stir fry. So you just add your vegetables, you know, they cook in, in two minutes. Yeah. You want them cooked, but you don't want them, you want some crunch yeah. still, you oh, know? absolutely. So you just add that, with, you know, give them a little toss, high heat, and then you hit it with the, uh, then you hit it with some liquid, and then... It, you know, let that simmer for Brad, about- do, do you know what the liquid is? Brad's <laughs> yeah. looking at the recipe. He's like, I made, I wrote <laughs> these recipes. It's chicken broth. Chicken broth. And yeah. then also, then you've got the sambal, which is like a, a hot sauce of sorts, basically. Right. And are you mixing that in with the chicken broth? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah so you mix that. I, I forget exactly what I did, but I-, I <laughs> Brad's a busy man. He's creating recipes all the time. He's like- <laughs> I might have mixed it in. I think what I was doing was the meat was going and it was rendering with the fat. And then I believe you add some of like the onions and stuff like that. And I believe in that point is where I start to add the sambal. Yeah, here it says after you add the scallions, <laughs> ginger, garlic, etc., you're tossing. Then it says add the sambal olek right. and mirin, right, which is like right. a uh, Japanese cooking wine. Right, a little sweetness to it. Uh, and to- toss and dough for about a minute. Add the radish, the snow peas, and then you cook until liquid is reduced Yeah, by it's all half. there. You're going to have to read the magazine. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to. <laughs> um, but again, like by, by 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 slicing the meat thinly, you get that nice browning, and then you infuse it with all this liquid that it's simmering, and it sort of right. tenderizes. Well, you the get liquid. to that, con- you know, the the toughness, the chewiness is the connective tissue, yeah. which starts to break down at a, a 160 degrees. Yeah. So because it, when it's a big steak, it's harder to get that internal temperature yeah. all the way through at 160. But when you cut it thin, that's that that mass is gone, and you can get that, you know. 16th of an inch piece of short rib to tender to connective tissue breaking down in you know in 15 minutes yeah. you know uh, let's talk about monkfish and cauliflower chowder yeah, uh, beautiful is- photo with these bright red like cherry tomatoes in there and a sort of orangey bouillabaisse colored broth um, I think most of us at home and even at restaurants like typically when we if we're cooking fish, it's usually like you're searing it in a pan to get nice and crispy or right. you're throwing a piece on the grill. I don't think most of us braise fish. Right. Well, see, what's great about monkfish is that it's – it's well, it's a horrendous-looking fish to begin with. <laughs> but it, you, it's the tail that you're eating. Uh-huh. And it's like this kind of – it's a great beginner fish. A, it's inexpensive. And B, it kind of benefits from being overcooked. Mm-hmm. It's a meaty fish. It's a meaty fish. It's kind of like a, a pretty tough tail. I mean, yeah. it's all this thing does is just use that tail to I guess that's what all fish do, but <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, it's it, it's just a tough tail. It works it. Okay. Yeah. Even when you just sear it, I mean I do it like that too, or on the grill or something. It's delicious. But it has like those connective tissues that hold this beautiful white flaky flesh together. And as soon as like you can cook it where you like normal fish, it'd be like, all right, like we're, we got this is mm. done. You got to take it a little bit more, I find, yeah. with the monk. And then it just all of a sudden, it goes from having a little bit of toughness to it to 
like cod flakes. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think it's interesting with any animal, whether it's a, a cow or a pig, it's those muscles that work more are the ones that have a lot more connective tissue. And you do need to coax that into tenderness. You do need to yeah. cook them longer, introduce some liquid. Whereas a tenderloin, for instance, gets no workout and that's, it doesn't have any fat. It doesn't it's, have just connective yeah, it's just lean. It's just lean. So, with this one, uh, I'm assuming you remember this dish, Brad. <laughs> yeah, I love um, it. <laughs> he's looking. Um, you've got the so a big. What we're calling for uh, a one and a half pounds of monkfish or cod. It says, but say you got monkfish. Are you browning it first and then adding liquid? Like, what's that process? Well, cod. They snuck the cod in there. Oh I mean, no, no. We're you no could cod. use cod, but maybe use like haddock or hake or something. You know, yeah. some of the cod populations are a little uh, exactly. But anyway, um, the cauliflower. What I love about the did cauliflower. You ever read, did you ever read? Cod, the fish that changed the world. Uh, Mark Rolansky's book. I didn't. Oh, it's a great book. It's a good one. Oh, it's, a, it's basically the history of Western, modern Western civilization via the cod. When uh, the cod fisheries were so uh, strong, the cod were jumping into the boats. They literally, used to say, yeah. yeah. But like back when the, I mean, like the Vikings and, and, right. and basically essentially discovering Canada by going over there to uh, further their fisher, the fishing waters and whatnot, and all of Europe was eating, you know, dried cod and brandod and all that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, um, we did a number on that one. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there, it's on its way back. Yeah. But um. Back to the cauliflower, which is in great stable condition. Well, no, back to the monkfish first. Oh. Yeah, monkfish. So, what are we? Are we browning it first, and then like let, walk us through this process? Because this is a beautiful dish, and it's interesting. I love the notion of cauliflower chowder. Right. So the fish gets chopped up into little into like into chunks. Okay. Um, you could do the whole tail. I love that. I mean, you don't need to brown it because yeah. there isn't really. There's not much that's going to brown. And You're not going to get that caramelization. And it's just, it just doesn't seem necessary. Yeah, okay. So you kind of just, you have your liquid. It's like fish just kind of goes in at the end and just kind of stews in that tomatoey, brothy goodness. Do you want to talk to us about the liquid, Brad? Yeah. It's, uh, so I like canned cherry tomatoes. I mean, uh, for a while in the test kitchen, I was getting a lot of flack for them. I mean, this is going back years. <laughs> uh, they, you know, that they're impossible to find, yada, yada. But apparently in the past, they're kind of everywhere. Uh-huh. And, uh. At least in the tri-state area here. Um, so yeah, and, but it says two. Wait, two fourteen and a half ounce, fourteen point five ounce cans of cherry tomatoes. Right. Uh, so it's a, a tomato broth, and then one cup low sodium chicken broth. Right. Uh, and that's your liquid essentially. Yeah, You've the got tomatoes some, are a lot. Of yeah, liquid. and you got some garlic, some olives, some tarragon. Not a big tarragon guy. Maybe I want to substitute something. That's okay. Yeah, parsley, whatever. Yeah, and you got some leeks that you're simmering with the in, with the cauliflower. Yep, and some olives, little green. Yeah. You know, like kind of like a Castle Patrano olive or yeah, something real yeah. nice in there. And uh, the cauliflower. So, like, we take some of the florets and then we take – I like to take some of it and go real – you can put it in a food processor or on, like, a cheese grater and get it like that cauliflower rice, even like a finer consist- consistency to where it almost kind of cooks like a – like it thickens it almost yeah, like, yeah, a, yeah. like a polenta. So it gets kind of creamy almost So it's not there. just like a – you're eating soup, but it's like more like a like a chowder, like a yeah, stewy kind chowder. of chowder. Um, and then as soon as the tomatoes start to burst, you know, then you just start getting a lot of liquid from them. And they have, you know, in the can, they, they got their own little liquidy, yeah. saucy thing going. Uh, my good pal Rue Rogers would always, uh, one of his sort of wintertime go-to fish recipes, he would take a, one of these um, monkfish tails, of which yeah. you speak. They get big, uh, too. Yeah, big ones. So it was, it was like enough, easily, for four to six people, basically. Nice. And he would put it in a roasting pan, lay the bottom with potatoes, maybe some onion, a little garlic, season up that fish, then some olive oil and oh, yeah. some white wine also in there and put the whole thing in the oven. Covered? I, that's, see, that's what I'm trying to remember. I bet Probably. it was covered for a while and then maybe, maybe took it off took it at off. the end. 
But the olive oil, the wine, it, so the potatoes would cook, the fish would break down. Oh, it's uh, a love story. And it's, yeah, <laughs> it's a love story. <laughs> but it was a really nice sort of one pot, one one pan dish that's impressive, I guess, when you bring it to the table, but also dead simple. Right. You know? Well, that's just, you know, a lot of food, less is more a lot of times, yeah. you know, and it's just, timing is more of a thing and good ingredients. And if you're getting some good ingredients, they tend to, you know, let them speak. And uh, what's nice, like you said, about like the one pan, one pot kind of thing on a weeknight, you know, uh, being like a family man and, you know, everyone's busy. Um is you don't make, you know, you, you don't need 20, you don't need seven skillets and this and that and four mixing bowls. I mean, there's a time and a place for that, but. I always end up being that guy and it drives me well, nuts. I make, I, make, I make dinner for my wife and me and I'm like, how did I make, what, where do all these pans and pots come from? Right. It's like, I got, I, yeah, I, I want to become more one pot guy. Well, when you're, you know, when you're getting creative and you're cooking and, you know, the uh, the juices are flowing, you know, it's like you're an artist. You can't just stop. <laughs> you got to reach for the paintbrush. Got to go with it. Yeah. Uh, when inspiration strikes. Um, okay, last one. Uh, this one looks delicious. Um, who, did Alex Lau photograph this story? Oh, yeah, good old Lau. Alex Lau, God bless him, did a great job. And how do we know who food styled? Where does it say? This What's is by uh, the lovely Rebecca Jerkovich. No, Rebecca Jerkovich, God bless her. So we really uh, got the A team yeah, on the, this the one. A, yeah, you did well, uh, Brad. Um, <laughs> But I love the photo of this one, curried chicken drumsticks, and there's some nicely browned drumsticks that look fall apart tender, some little uh, sort of like nicely browned shallots. Yeah, crispy shallot. A tangle of sort of like uh, vermicelli rice. rice noodles and this nice curry broth. Like, mm. Yeah, it's delicious, you know, right? Especially it's getting it's a little cooler. You know, it's just it's, this is how I like to eat. And uh, the chicken drumsticks are just, in my opinion, super underrated Uh you can get them, you know, you can get like organic value pack for like $10 or mm. something, you know, like they're just, they're cheap and um, they're full of flavor. And I, I, in my opinion, some of the best meat on the chicken, my favorite part of the chicken is the leg. And I mean, this is half of the leg. So yeah, well, I, I'm, I have, I'm going to, I have some issues with drumsticks. <laughs> okay. I like a thigh. My issue with drumsticks sometimes is that they can get like a little kind of sinewy and there's some weird things right. running through them. And like, if it's, if they're not, it's like if you get like one of those like rotisserie chickens that's been going for a long time and it's just Cooks literally down. just pulling off the bone, great. But if you get like sometimes if you get like the roast chicken, just like the forty-five minute roast chicken or it's whatever, it's a little you're pulling on it and like I'm like I'm doing too much work, man. Right. But see, what's nice about this is that we're 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 browning it and then we're covering it in the, in a shallow liquid. So it's getting that heat is penetrating, you know, a dry roast compared to being submerged in a hot liquid. Yeah. It's going to get in there, I feel, and it it gets a more even cook quicker. Yeah. So, so this in this case, you're using, again, uh, low-sodium chicken broth and uh, unsweetened coconut milk. Yeah. Uh, and then you got some some curry some curry action going on. Some, some Vadavan. Vadavan. Can we talk about Vadavan? Yeah, speak? it's one of my favorite curry powders. I, I know, I mean, I don't know a ton about it or its its origins, but I know it's got it's a French influenced. Uh huh. And there's, you know, you can get it. It's got nice chunks of spices in it. And you can get it with bay leaves in it, and uh, it's just it's worth buying. I mean, seek it out on the internet if you can't find it, and it's, it gives it a brilliant, you know, yellow color. It's got that turmeric in it, and uh, it's just it's just a real nice kind of mild flavored, uh, not spicy really, kind of just beautiful curry, and. Uh, yeah, and then you so you get that blooming. What I like to do is when I sweat my onions, once they're just about done, then I like to throw my my dry spice in there, mm -hmm. in the fat, in the onion yeah. fat, and just kind of let it bloom, and all those spices will open up. In that case, typically with whether drumsticks or other meat, you 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 sear off the meat first, so you get all that crispy right. flavor in there, then throw the onions remove in. Remove the yeah, meat. remove the meat. Yeah. 
onions then absorb the meaty crispy flavor. Yeah. Then you hit it with the spice, and then you're putting everything back in the pot. And this is like any any technique: brown meat, add yeah. aromatics, whether that's onions, garlic, remove whatever. Meat. Yeah, remove meat. Brown meat, remove it. Add aromatics. Serve. Put meat back in pot. Add liquid. Top on. Right. And that's a basic braise technique for for any braise. And right. In this case, then you just you've got that. You have the the coconut milk. You've got the vadavan. You make a simple pot of rice noodles on the side. Sure. You mix it Cooking all together. Yeah. And what I like here, which I always think is a, a good move, uh, and I don't know if Brad Leone does this, but I know Rebecca Jerkovich, our food <laughs> stylist, does. She hits it with some fresh cilantro at the end. Oh, you got it. And I love the fresh herbs on a, lo- a braise. Like the braise is so rich and stewy. It's nice you to get, get some that, of that brightness yep. at the end. That and it, Oh, it's in the recipe. Oh. <laughs> and, and with the lime too. That oh, yes. A little bit of fresh brightness at the end with the herbs. So you got, like you said, you got that like nice, flavorful, rich broth. And then you got that like real floral brightness yeah. from the lime and from the cilantro. Well, I think the lime is also key. And we had a podcast a few weeks ago talking about vinegar and, and oh, yeah. how so often professional chefs – Will always add a shot of like vinegar or acid to a to a stew or a braise just to sort of heighten the flavors. And sure, it's something just, that we home cooks don't typically do. Most home cooks. I most think, home I, I cooks. Brad Leone I, does. I think, I think it's coming around a uh-huh. little bit more. I mean, people are starting to spend a little more money on olive oil, and I think people are starting to realize that having a good bottle of vinegar, even if you're just making a salad or finishing a braise like this, just a little dash of it, just bright. You know, like there's so much bad vinegar. When you get a good one, it's like it's hard to go back. You know, and, I, uh, I I have a good bottle of my house right now, and I just like, and I, it is one of those things. Even just when you're making a simple vinaigrette, like literally just olive oil and, and vinegar, you're like, oh, that tastes good. It's good, and and you hit a, a dash of little over here or there, right? A little dabble, do you? I mean, even it's, I'll spend thirty bucks on a good bottle of vinegar, you know, and it, it lasts. And you know, people will be like, oh, thirty dollars. You know, it's easy to say no to, but it's an investment. You know, you <laughs> you got that for a little while. Yeah. it's not like it's a it's a you, know, you spent more money on. On a steak, you know. I mean, you literally do. Yeah. Yes, and that's and that's one meal for right. one. Um, all right, so weeknight braises, Brad. Uh, we got pork tenderloin with. Uh, by the way, you can find all of these on bonappetit.com. Pork tenderloin with golden beets, uh, monkfish and cauliflower chowder. Oh yeah. Uh, curried chicken drumsticks, uh, and finally sambal short rib stir fry. Uh, or you can find. All of the recipes together uh, in Brad's article entitled Four Quick and Brazy Recipes to Cook This Week. Brad Leone, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for chatting anytime. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Emma Wurtzman and Carrie Polis and edited by Mitra Kaboli. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Grady's with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.